the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, interstellar transportation gates become cluttered with rusty paradox and corrosive irony. Hey, it's like rain on your wedding day. Or isn't that not irony? Cthulhu irked by Christmas present of man-eating ants and ill-fitting pants. You can't get that guy anything. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have a roundtable interview this time with the editor and several of the writers who have stories in this great new anthology out now at Booksellers, the Jim Bain Memorial Award, The First Decade. It's a really wonderful collection of the best of the best from our annual uh, Short Story Award contest. This book has some really great stories in it from the 10 years we've been running this um, excellent contest. You'll hear um, all the details of it later. It's edited by Nebula Award winner William Ledbetter, who's the longtime contest administrator for the Jim Bay Memorial Award. Also along are Marina Lotsetter, David Levine, K.B. Rylander, and Martin Shoemaker, all authors with stories in the anthology. It's a good time, so that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leaden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. The December hardcovers and original trade paperbacks are here. Ho, ho, ho. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Life is but a... Wait, that's not a holiday song, but you know what I mean. Out now in hardcover is 1636 The Vatican Sanction by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon. It's spring in Burgundy. The flowers are out and so are the cardinals. That is the cardinals of Pope Urban's renegade papacy, now on the run from the Vatican's would-be usurper, Borcha. Fortunately, Urban has help from those indomitable modern West Virginians thrown back in time during the Ring of Fire cataclysm. But there's a deadly team of professional killers in town directed by the man who almost killed the Pope before, lethal Spanish mastermind Pedro Dolor. Dolor hasn't come to confess murder. He's come to commit a cardinal sin. Several of them, in fact. Ha! It's May Day for a Pope, and the time-tossed West Virginians of Grantville must respond. Sounds like a good one. Also out in trade paperback is a really interesting and cool book by Reich E. Spohr. This one is called Princess Holy Aura. What would you change to save the world? How about everything? Literally, everything you are, right down to your age, gender, and eventually your personality. Stephen Russ is living a regular American nerdly guy's life in his early 30s. He's working, hanging out, gaming, having the occasional romance. He is unusually brave and decent. But these traits haven't come to the fore so far in his life. They're just things he has. Then a child's desperate scream leads him to battle faceless, winged things that almost kill him. The choice has arrived. Continue normal existence or become Princess Holy Aura. The first of the apocalypse, maidens. It's time to man up. Make the choices as an adult. Put your life on the line by becoming a 12-year-old girl. Give up being Stephen Russ to become the one chance our world has against the monstrous forces that lurk on the other side of forever waiting to pounce. The world needs Princess Holiara again. Wow, 
Just wow. This is a weird, fun book, a take on anime, the Prince, the Sailor Moon kind of anime. And um, it's kind of a meta take where the guy that's chosen to become Princess Holiara is um, this nerdy gamer who um, has to take on the role. Pretty funny and fun. It's a fun book. Princess Holiara by Reiki Spore and 1636 The Vatican Sanction by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon are now available at booksellers everywhere. Want to welcome William Ledbetter, Karen Rylander, KB Rylander, um, David Levine, Marina Lotzetter, and Martin Shoemaker to uh, to the podcast. Hello, folks. Hi. Howdy, Tony. Hello. Now, all of these are excellent short story writers. Um, William Ledbetter, for instance, is a Nebula Award-winning writer with more than 50 speculative fiction stories and nonfiction articles. Um, he's been a space and technology geek since childhood and spent most of his non-writing career in the aerospace and defense industry. He administers the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award Contest for Bain Books and the National Space Society. And that's what we're here to talk about, actually, because all of these guys are winners, runners-up, and uh, and people who have uh, who have placed in the Jim Bay Memorial Award and who are included in our great new anthology that um, just came out this month, the Jim Bay Memorial Award, The First Decade, um, edited by William Ledbetter. Um, let me tell you about a few of the other um, writers here. Uh, K.B. Rylander spends way too much time thinking up odd questions and tracking down the answers. When she's not writing, you can find her shipping, uh, sipping fine bourbon or playing Lego with her kids. I think you sip fine bourbon because, like, you live in a distillery, right? <laughs> well, I don't quite live there, but it yeah. feels like it. That you're there's something connected with professional uh, uh, bourbon making, right? So, um, bourbon and, and beer. Bourbon and beer. Uh, she writes science fiction, fantasy, young adult fiction. Works in the beer and whiskey industry. Hey, it says so right there. Speaks a decent amount of Swedish. Is terrible at Scrabble, but plays a mean game of chess. Um, David D. Levine is the author of the Andre Norton Award-winning novel Arabella of Mars. Um, its sequel, Arabella and the Battle of Venus, and over 50 SF and fantasy stories. His story, uh, ticket, 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 won the Hugo, and he has been shortlisted for awards, including the Hugo, Nebula, Campbell, and Sturgeon. His stories have appeared in Asimov's Analog, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Tor.com, uh, numerous years' best anthologies, and his award winning collection, Space Magic. Marina J. Lostetter's original short fiction has appeared in venues such as Lightspeed, Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show, and Flash Fiction Online. Originally from Oregon, she now lives in Arkansas with her husband Alex. Her debut novel, Numenon, is an epic space adventure starring an empathetic uh, AI, alien megastructures, and generations upon generations of clones. Wow, that sounds like the definition of space opera. Martin L. Shoemaker is a programmer who writes on the side, or maybe it's the other way around. Uh, programming pays the bills, but his second-place story in the Jim Bay Memorial Writing Contest earned him lunch with Buzz Aldrin. I was there. That was great. Nope. Programming never did that. His Clark's World story, Today I Am Paul, received the Washington Science Fiction Society Small Press Award and was also nominated for a Nebula. It's been reprinted in Year's Best Science Fiction 
33rd annual edition edited by Gardner Dojois, my, uh, the guy that made me able to ever be published. Uh, and it's been translated in Dane, French, Hebrew, Czech, Polish, German, and Chinese. Others of his stories have appeared in Analog, Galaxy's Edge, Digital Science Fiction, Forever Magazine, and Writers of the Future. And his novella, Murder on the Aldrin Express, was reprinted in Year's Best Science Fiction and uh, Year's Top Ten as Short SF Novels 4. And uh, what what else you got here? Oh, his novelette, Racing to Mars, received the Analog Analytical Laboratory Award. That's a good one. So all of all of these folks have uh, been winners or runners-up or placers in, in our contest. Um, Bill, can you t- tell us a little bit about the contest and the origins of the contest? And um, Well, um, actually, the contest was, uh, was intended to be a one-of uh, type thing. Um, my uh, local National Space Society uh, chapter was going to host the International Space Development Conference, which is uh, the National Space Society's uh, annual uh, conference every year. We were going to host it here in Dallas, and we wanted to do a few new little things. And, and of course, being a writer, one of the things that I one of the suggestions I came up with was to have a short fiction contest. And and we wanted to we wanted to attract uh, you know high quality writers. So the idea was to find a publisher who would uh, uh, who would pay pro rates to the winner. And uh, so having had a little bit of uh, um, um, experience with Bain editors and, and working with Bain, uh, they published one of my stories just previously to that um, in, in Jim Bain's universe. I, I pinged uh, some of them and started, you know, the process, asked if they'd be interested, and they were. And, um, um, and it actually went uh, up the chain to Jim Bain from what I understand, and he also was uh, uh, was gung ho on the contest. And uh, uh, the sad thing is, um, the, um, he gave his approval, but then he ended up dying before the you know uh, before the contest was final. So um, you know the winner was announced after his after his death. So that was that was kind of a sad thing. But but then uh, people at Bain contacted me afterwards and says, hey, uh, we're interested in maybe making this a year-long thing, I mean, a, an annual thing, um, and maybe naming it after Jim Bain would National Space Society be interested in that. So uh, they were, and we are, and it's and it's 12 years now. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. <clears throat> I mean, the whole process of... Um, of uh giving out the award and everything is just is just damn cool right we um we get to go to one of the banquets and you really uh it's it's really a highlight of the uh, of the international space development conference yeah yeah and I, I think so and and you know that's one of the um that's one of the great things you know as, as martin mentioned earlier it's like you know he attended um, as a second place winner one year, and and we ended up setting at lunch with 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 Buzz Aldrin, and and we see people like that at at the ISDC all the time, um, you know, uh, just about all the the, the big names in, in the uh, aerospace industry have been there at one point or another, you know, one year or or, or another. So uh, if if you're you know, a space advocate and a science fiction fan, it, it's a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really fun. Um, and, uh, and 
regular listeners to the podcast to the podcast will um <clears throat> will have heard us talk um last probably i guess three years or or four years even we've um we've done a uh interview of of the winners and runners up um and that's always fun to do especially when we were trying to solve sound issues by because we're all in a bar afterwards or something like that <laughs> yeah but um so uh what why is there a book well um you know we we kind of batted the idea around for for a long time and at one point we were we were actually i think uh um thinking we would just do the entire first 10 years but that would have been a huge book and so we kind of uh we kind of boiled it down to you know what we thought was a good cross section a good representation of the stories uh that had been put out in that first year and and I think that we first decade really did that yeah yeah the first, I mean first decade I'm sorry yeah. yeah and um and I think one of the good things about the book is that you know a lot of times people ping me even though we have guidelines printed online and things like that and they can go and find the winners of, of the previous stories people are always still offering you know asking me it's like well what kind of stories are you looking for and it's like now i can point to this book and say these are the kind of stories we're looking for <laughs> yeah i mean basically something that is uh that's that's positive about space and human uh, human entry into um, space and the future. It doesn't have to be like you know all fairy tale and and no problems. In fact, it can't be that, or it won't be a good story, right? But um, it it's not about despair. In other words, these are not stories of despair. Right. Yeah. I I think you know stories that are sent. That you know where like everybody dies and and it's because technology you know is, is is evil or because they shouldn't have been gone to space anyway. I mean those are the kinds of those are not the kind of things that we're looking for. So those those kind of stories probably aren't going to make it very far in the contest. Um, we're looking a lot more for you know um, I mean you know they don't have to be like you said they don't have to be happy go you know happy shiny fairy tales, but they have to show our um, you know, human um, exploration of this of space and mostly the solar system, since it's set in such a you know short future, um, show it in, in kind of a positive light and, and show um, you know the the heroics and the sacrifice and, and, and the uh, intelligence and and, and uh, everything that goes behind um, that kind of endeavor. And that's what we're wanting to see. The more of that, the better. Yeah. Well, it's it's cool stuff. And what the way it works is that is that these things get submitted, and Bill Ledbetter goes through the initial submissions, and um, he is he's like the mainspring behind all this. If it weren't for Bill, none of this would happen. And um, he he puts enormous amounts of of effort into, and, and we're so lucky to have him. Uh, uh, because he's a great short story writer as well as a great um, picker of short stories as well. Um, you can't say that guy can't write because he sure as hell can. And so, uh, and then he picks out 10 of them for us and then me and uh, Tony Weiskopf and the other Bain editors and, and lately it's been David Drake um, have uh, have read them 
and we discuss them and we arrive at a at an order, right? That's about how it works, right, Bill? Yeah, and I, and the one the stories that I send you have the names uh, stripped off and all yeah. the you know the the author identification stripped off. So you're reading blind. I mean, you're basing your your judgments entirely on the merit of the story. So I think that's that's a great way for a contest. Right. Absolutely. Well, let's um, let's talk about some of the stories so that we can, we can get an idea of what uh, what they are. Um, why don't we start with Marina's, uh, Bill? Balance. This is a this is um this is a great story. It, it it it's a this is an example of a story that is it has a dark side, but that is still about humans going out into space and some of the costs that that we might have to pay. Um, and uh, and and some of the some of the poignancy of leaving the Earth behind as well. Um, tell us, can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you how you conceived of the story, uh, Marina? interesting because I was working on my novel at the time and it's actually it's a chapter out of my novel um, and the structure of my novel knew such that each chapter is basically a short story um, and I was about halfway through writing it and uh, I saw Bill talking about the contest and he's like alright this is you know the near future hopeful sci-fi of you know 8,000 words or less and I looked at the chapter and I was like that's what this is provided they think it's helpful. So um, it is on the, uh, it's one of those stories where it's like, all right, yes, we're going into space and we're searching for a greater purpose. It's really, really about the people and their strong bonds and their deep relationships and about working through kind of, you know, struggles that everybody goes through on Earth, but in a totally different context. Um, Well, it's about a, playing with the net up kind of science fiction about um, a, a generation ship and you've got what you're taking with you, right? Yeah. So you only have the resources you have on board. Um, in their case, there is little to no stopping along from point A to point B, um, which means that, you know, you have to work as efficiently as possible. So I have, you know, what's called retirement, which is that once crew members reach a certain age, they have to retire, quote unquote, die in order to, you know, provide resources for the up and coming children. Um, so it kind of focuses on uh individual who's being retired and his uh surrogate grandson and their relationship and how um the young boy Jamal has to deal with um this mentor figure passing on. Um, so I was looking for, okay, it's a dark topic it's kind of, you know, it's a sad thing, but it's a sad thing a lot of us have gone through. And how do you find the hope in that? And how do you move on as people? And it's not like, you know, okay, you're here and then you die. There's purpose for everybody being here if we all work towards, you know, making life better for each other is kind of what I was going for. So, Well, Jamal is, um, and there's a lot of humor in here as well, because Jamal really has no idea where babies come from. No, he's, he's, he's young. Yeah. <laughs> I think and they don't come from where they come from Remember the time. currently. So they don't come from where they normally come from, no. In this case, um, everyone is cloned. So learning where babies come from is a let's take you over to the ship and show you where babies come from sort of an endeavor. So, yes, it's a little bit of a, you can imagine at 8 and 10 what a 
horror show, that would be seeing clone babies in tubes. It kind of shows that process as well. Yeah. Especially if it's if it's going to be a sister, and maybe you were hoping for a brother. Yep. We've got some issues there, which we are. His grandfather figure, Diego, helps him work through. So yeah. it's well, about, yeah, trying to, to get your family in line and understanding how people interact with each other and which, you know, that all people are valuable, even when you're a little brother or, or you know, a big brother who wants a little brother and instead you're getting a little sister. So. Do I mean, the conception of the human family, um, the way it will, the way that technology will change it, but yet there are some, some basics that remain, right, is, is sort of at the heart of the story. Well, it's a really pretty piece. Um, any, anything else we might want to talk about on, on balance, Bill? Um, no, uh, other than the novel that balance is part of is, um, is really well put together, and I'm, I'm almost to the end of it now, and I've been enjoying it quite a bit. So. Cool. What's the, to- what's the title of that novel? Numenon. Um, and so far it's on three best of lists this year, so I'm excited about that. It's on Kirkus and Publishers Weekly and Barnes and Noble's best of 2017, so I'm, I'm excited about that. <laughs> Very cool. I, I mean, that's one of the things we could talk is the, the quality of the writer that this contest attracts is, is excellent. Um, and I think that, that also can be put down to Bill's, um, to, to Bill's involvement. Um. Let's talk about David's story then uh, a bit, which is um, Citizen Astronaut. Um, this is one of those classic, like, uh, solve a, solve a technical, technical problem, in, in, in this case on Mars, right, David? Yes. And the main character is not, he's not really an engineer. Um, he's kind of a utility player, I, I guess. Is that... Well, he's a he's a writer. Uh, he, um, his his job. Uh, the title of this, the title of the piece is Citizen Astronaut, and he is he is the citizen astronaut on this mission. He is the person who um, has been has been sent along in the mix in order to um, represent the average citizen, and uh, it's it's a publicity position. And the problem is is that he finds tension between the publicity that he's supposed to be doing and the realities of working in space. Uh, which are both not as glamorous as you might think, and also subject to a certain amount of politics, because working in space does indeed have its problems, and the people who are running the show, especially the people who hired him for publicity purposes, do not want him talking about the stuff that makes life difficult. But as a writer, the stuff that makes life difficult also makes life interesting, and therefore his his tension is between what they'll let him say and having something that just sounds like another boring puff piece. Yeah, and he he runs into that rather dramatically um, when he when he publishes something that almost gets their funding yanked, right? Yes. This is all this is all based. Um, it's an it's an amplification, shall we say, of my experiences at the Mars Desert Research Laboratory in Utah. Uh, I spent two weeks. As a, as, as a simulated astronaut on a simulated Mars base on simulated Mars. Uh, but we were living 
there were six of us we'd never met before living in a tin can in the middle of the Utah desert. And we really were well away from civilization. I mean, the skies were completely black. Um, and anything that we needed, if we didn't bring it with us, um, there was a guy living in a town not too far away who could bring us stuff if we really, really needed it, uh, like water. We had to have water uh, trucked in. But apart from that, we were basically on our own. So it was a pretty good simulation of the Mars experience. And the business about things always breaking down and you have to cobble together a solution out of whatever bits and pieces you happen to have with you, you know, that's based on, that's based on my experience in Utah. And from what I've talked to uh, people who've actually worked in space or worked with space hardware, um, when you're out on the frontier, you have to make do with whatever you've got with you because you're a long way from the nearest hardware store. Um, we didn't have, I mean, there were, there were breakdowns, there were politics, but what happens in the story is, is far, far worse than anything that really happened. Uh, the people of the Mars Society are wonderful yeah. and not nearly as nasty as the bureaucrats in the story. <laughs> well, hey, did you get on each other's nerves out there? I've always wondered about how much I could stand if I had to actually be in a habitat. There was a little bit of interpersonal tension, um, but it was, um, I mean, I don't know how we would have handled it if we'd been out there for months or years, but for two weeks, you can put up with anything. I mean, you know, imagine your worst college roommate, you know, I mean, that's, it wasn't as bad as my worst college roommate by any means, but if you, if you can put up with someone as a college roommate, you really are living in each other's laps, um, and it's true that you're a lot more inescapable if you're the only human beings for millions of miles, but... We have plenty of experience of working with people in isolated instances, uh, whether it's on a submarine or uh, on an Antarctic base or in various uh, distant research and military bases. So we've got a lot of experience of, of dealing with people in confined and isolated circumstances. So I'm sure we'll be able to handle it when we go out to space. Yeah. One of the, um, one of the great bits in the story is the um... – electrical tape that's over the flush button on the toilet. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, that was the toilet. Okay. In, in a house, in an ordinary, in an ordinary earthbound house thing is houses rot from the bathroom out because a bathroom is a really complicated system. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in a comparatively small space. And so the bathroom of the uh, of the Mars habitat is a place where it's a really critical system. And it's also a place where things can go wrong that affect the whole system. I and mean, if something goes wrong in the bathroom, everybody becomes miserable for a whole variety of different ways. Um, so we actually had, um, during my during my uh, two weeks at the Mars base, uh, we actually had a problem with the shower. The shower was not working at all, so we were restricted to sponge baths uh, for that two-week period. Um, they did they did fix that fairly shortly thereafter, but um, but the shower was the shower was not working, and the toilet was not working as it has been intended. Uh, it was originally intended to be a, a recycling system, but making a recycling system work is really, really difficult. NASA's actual toilet on the space station is like a multi-million dollar system, and we didn't have that kind of budget. Um, so the recycling toilet was problematic. It required an awful lot of manual intervention to keep it working, and I believe in subsequent years they did replace that with a more conventional uh, septic tank system. 
There's a lot of um, thinking outside of the box in the, in the the stories that we have in the contest. A lot of the the better stories um, have that sort of. Uh, what are some of the things that could go wrong on Mars, or, and that do in the story? Some examples. We don't want to necessarily give the the big thing away, but yeah. Well, um, the thing is, is that anything that can go wrong on a camping trip can go wrong on Mars. Only more so. I mean. You know, on a camping trip, you might forget to pack water or, or um, bears could eat all of your food. And there are no bears on Mars, but on the other hand, there's also no air. So if you forget to bring your air, that's a really big problem. Um, but a lot of the problems that can occur in space have to do with air and water. Water is surprisingly important and surprisingly difficult to manage uh, because unlike, uh, you know, Air, if the air gets away, that's really bad. If you lose the water, that's really bad. But if you keep the water, but it winds up in the wrong place, that's also really bad. Um, so there are all kinds of problems with food, water, air, and electricity uh, that can go wrong on Mars. One of the big problems on Mars, and this is something I did not go into in this story, is, uh, is the dust. Uh, the dust on Mars is, is extremely fine. It gets everywhere, and it's remarkably corrosive. Um, the, the dust on Mars is almost certainly made of materials that, in combination with water, turns into a nasty acid. Um, and that's going to be really corrosive and really destructive to all kinds of systems uh, where people actually try to live there. Um, so you know, the dust is going to get into everything. Doors won't close. Seals won't seal. Um, it could. Uh, there's a lot of iron on Mars, of course. You can tell from its red color, and so that means that the dust is going to tend to sh tend to uh, short out electrical equipment. Um, and then there are just all the other problems that can go wrong if you are in any isolated environment. Of things break and have to be repaired, and you don't have the necessary uh, spare parts. Now, that scene in Apollo 13 where uh, they bring in a whole bunch of junk and say, okay, we need to make this round thing fit into this square hole using only what we have on the table. And really, every day on Mars is like that, because you're always having to make a round peg fit into a square hole, and you never have anything other than what you happen to have brought with you, apart from rocks. And there's a lot of good things to do with rocks, but not necessarily what you need. Yeah. Well, it's um, it's a really cool story, but it's really f the um, the the big um, something goes wrong and our hero solves it. Um, it's really fun um, in the story as well. Um, hey, Bill, anything else that we might want to mention or say about David's story? Well, I just thought I remembered when I first read it, um, and I had uh, I had kind of followed uh, some of his. Um, you know his posts that he had made, and uh, when he was um, when he was at the uh, the center, you know, when he was out there in the desert, and um, and I, I could really tell the level of realism had, was ramped up in his story compared to a lot of the others that I've read, um, and I I knew that that was probably based on his his experiences, and and I I just really loved that that it you know he really kind of made it feel like you were. You were there, and, and the, the problems these people were facing were, were very realistic. And yeah, I really, I, I really enjoyed that part of the story. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? What you know. Yeah. So, um, KB Rylander, um, you were never um, uploaded into a spaceship, but you wrote a pretty good story <laughs> about a spaceship AI, and we fly is the title of that story. 
Um, I remember reading this, and I, you know, we just, it, it was like, I know that, that was, that was uh, one of the years where we we're like, yeah, this is the one. We like this one. Um, it was just, it has a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff going for it. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you conceived of that? Um, sure. So, um, uh, so I started, it started from thinking about like when we um, are exploring. Uh, far, far out. Um, basically, uh, it makes sense for the first things that go out um, to be not uh, to be like probes. Um, so something like AI, or um, in this case, it's a human mind that's been um, uploaded into a robotic probe. And um, especially when you go far enough out to be looking for habitable planets, which is um, what my story is about. It takes place um, near Alpha Centauri. Um, I I knew that I needed to have um, something that was intelligent enough that it could act by itself because communication is rather difficult when you're uh, four light years away. Um, so uh, the probe is going to need to be able to think for itself. So um, a human mind uh, made a lot of sense. And um, and then when I knew I wanted to do a human mind, um, the problem that uh, she, she, my character's female, what she's going to have to face kind of um, popped into my head and I realized that I had my story. Um, and I don't want to give away what that was because it's kind of, uh, kind of a big spoiler. <laughs> but, uh, but once I had that problem, um, the story just kind of fell into place and um, the story opens with her awakening, awake, uh, waking up after um, uh, decades of travel um, to Alpha Centauri. Uh, she's reached her destination, but um, just like everything is going haywire, and she has no idea why these things are going haywire. Um, and so she has to deal with these problems um, and still try and find a habitable planet um, for people who are on their way. Yeah. I mean, it's the the issue has been dealt with in science fiction in so many different ways that when the the ship arrives, um, there's a crucial bit of information that is, that somehow is missing and needs to be gotten, um, or has been lost somehow along the way. Um, it's, uh, I think, uh, how to solve that issue is, um, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it, trying to think of where I could go with this question. Uh, talk some more about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I well, I, I will tell a little bit about kind of a personal experience that I put in there. Um, so one of one of her, I guess, symptoms, if you will, one of the things is that she's totally panicked. She um, is suddenly like terrified of being in space when her entire life she's loved being in space. Um, but then she's also got like these physical. Um, symptoms that are totally weird because she doesn't really have a body anymore. Um, and one of those is that she feels like she's choking. And that was an experience that I um, actually got from morning sickness when I was pregnant with my son. Um, I just, it was just a weird, like just random pregnancy thing. Just for like three months, I felt like there was like a string around my neck, just random. I felt like I was going crazy. But thankfully, I knew it was from the nausea. And so once the nausea went away, it just disappeared. Um, but having something like that for three months, like I couldn't stand wearing a seatbelt. And I couldn't, I couldn't stand wearing having a shirt that was close to my neck. Um, so that was just kind of a, 
a, something that I put into that story because it's a, an experience that um, I know what it feels like. And then if you are also then in a, like a robotic probe and you have no control over your body at all, then um, no, basically she doesn't even have a neck, and but she has this sensation. And then there's other things um, that she's dealing with and she's kind of working through her memories um, throughout the story because she, she knows that there's a clue within her memories, but um, she, she has to figure out what, what it is. Yeah. I mean, and it, it also has the feel of that um, it, when like your computer breaks <laughs> or you're, since most of us are probably the people that get called when somebody else's computer breaks, you know, because we allegedly know something about it. Um, and, and you have to go and fix it and you just, something's not working. You don't know what it is. There's something you're missing and you just keep searching for it. The system keeps crashing. Um, and, but but if you just bash at it long enough, maybe, maybe it'll come somehow. Um, yeah, and she does, she does reboot pretty often and still has the same error over and over again, which is something I think we can all relate to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Bill, uh, anything else we might want to say about um, We Fly? Uh, yeah, one of the things that kind of amazed me, I mean, I, I agreed with, with you. This is just a, just a really good story. I mean, it packs a, an emotional wallop, and um, and I think it, 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 it touches a lot of, you know, it touches people, you know, people's own experiences, you know, and so, but the the cool thing about it for me was when I found out that this was the first uh, story that Karen had ever sold. So, isn't that right, Karen? Yes, that's true. Yeah, so this was her first sale, and it was a pro sale, and, and it was a contest-winning sale. And uh, uh, I, I just thought that was pretty impressive that, uh, you know, there's, you know, her, her career right off the bat, she, she, you know, she took off the gate, out of the gate fast. Well, maybe it was that uh, motherhood experience that uh, you know a lot of people spend have to spend a, a great many years uh, before they could be a writer, <laughs> figuring out some stories to tell. So she, maybe she had some pre-made for. Her. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. If we're talking about you over your head. Uh, that might be the case. I don't know where the hell you came from, Karen. But um, that was a really damn good story. That's for sure. So. Um, Thank you. So, uh, and Martin, um, yours is another uh, techno-solving problem uh, story. Um, so what's the, our main character is one of the uh, search and rescuers, but it's intercut with, um, with another narrative, um, which is a really cool technique. Who is the, what are the two stories that we're sort of, that are, that are going to intersect? The, um, the other narrative is basically a ship's log that is capturing the internal uh, conversation, primarily the ship steward on the crashed ship. And what I felt was the elements uniting these two pieces is both of them are incredibly dedicated professionals who are out there to do whatever they have to do to save lives. And so they're both attacking the life-saving problem just from two different angles. And what is the problem? What's happened? Uh, The problem is a ship that has disappeared from tracking 
and so therefore is presumed to be down on the surface someplace. But because of the nature of the incident that happened, they have a search radius they have to find. They can't just say, oh, gee, it went down here. First we've got to find it, and then we've got to figure out how do we get these people out without compromising the uh, atmospheric integrity of the hull, and how do we get medical aid to the ones who need it? It is, in some sense, for those of us showing my age here, for those of us who grew up on emergency, it's an episode of emergency on the moon. Um, but it, it was actually a friend of mine had had come up with the idea for my primary protagonist as a character for a game that I'd ever ended up running. But this concept of a search and rescue worker, I thought, that's story potential. That's got some drama there. Yeah, the um, just just the um, our guy, uh, our main character, um, he's very matter of fact, and you know he's he's trained. He does the things the way he does them, and he has a lot of sort of search and rescue aphorisms and 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 um, rules of thumb that he applies. But throughout it all, you can feel um, how much he wants to get to those people and and save them throughout. And I tried to, to carry on this sort of the two-track brain going on, that there's the track which is do the work, do the work, solve the problem, solve the problem. And then there's a track in the back of his head saying, oh, my God, the consequences of this, if I don't do this, it's going to be awful. This is my experience with people who are, are well-trained and well-versed for crises is they have to be able to separate out the two parts of their brain, that the part's going to panic in the end has to be really calm right now so the other part can just follow through on its training. Yeah. And the, the steward um, is also, uh, you know, is trained. And that's, that's I, I guess a lot of times we forget that that's actually what flight attendants are there for, is to, is to save our asses if something goes, goes horribly wrong, right? Yeah. Serving us our, our chips and coke is something they do to fill time, but that's not what their real core mission is. Yeah. When everything goes south, they're the ones who are going to be the direct contact with the passengers trying to keep everybody going and keep everybody alive. Well, it's a cool story. Um, Bill, anything else we want to say about Martin's piece? I always think I always think of Scramble as as just kind of a classic example of, of, of how to get, you know, how to get uh, a, a winning contest story here, because I, because it, it always comes to mind when I think of that. And, and one of the reasons for that is like, you know, we get a lot of stories about asteroid mining. We get a lot of stories about moon bases and that kind of thing. But, but Martin, you know, Martin's story takes place on the moon, but he comes at it from, from a different angle, you know, to begin with, he comes at it from the angle of the search and rescue team and, and, and the steward on the ship, you know, like these aren't typical heroes that we see, um, in, in, in a lot of fiction. Um, so that made it interesting right off the bat. Um, but, but also, you know, you, you're getting these flashes like, you know, like you were, like Martin was explaining, you're getting these flashes of, of, of emotion and professionalism as as would have to be there for people in those positions. And I, I just think that the whole thing just come together really well. And it, it just always stands out in my mind as a good example of, 
of the kind of stories that we were looking for. And this was this was earlier. Uh, I mean, you know, this was fairly early in in, in the contest too. So, um, you know, it, it just always, you know, it's, it's always a reminder for me. You know, the kind of stories that that we can we can find. So, yeah. And all of uh, did all of you uh, make it to the um, to the ceremony, or um... I did. Yep. Yep. I think wasn't it fun? I didn't get an invitation. Ah, <laughs> wasn't it fun for those that did? That was. Oh, yeah. Great. It was great. <laughs> yeah. It's just super cool. You meet Buzz Aldrin, whatever, you know, it's always in a cool place. Um, and we are holding it again. Um, People who are doing this for a living. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we're holding it again. Bill, tell us about how um, prospective writers can, uh, can enter the contest. Well, the contest is open right now. Um, and and it will remain open until um, February 1st. Um, and you, there's um, the website. Uh, there's a link on the website, uh, on the Bain.com website under awards, um, where you can go and read the guidelines of what we're looking for. Um, and as what as what I as we discussed earlier, we're we're looking for stories about mankind's near future in space. Um, and we're, we're looking mostly for human stories, you know, um, um, stories, um, you know, that have some emotion in them, not just, you know, just not just a problem-solving story. Um, and, um, you know, you know, Mars bases and moon bases and asteroid mining and, and all, you know, all the cool stuff that can happen in our, our solar system in the next 50 or 60 years, you know, so. Um, and then uh, once, once, the contest closes. Uh, we finish reading through the uh, submissions, uh, and we winnow that down to ten uh, stories, which is harder than it sounds. Usually, I end up with about fifteen or fifteen in my pile that I really like. So some of them don't get in, and then we send them to you guys, and 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 uh, you pick the winners. Um, and we we announce sometime in that period we announced the 10 finalists um and then um you know probably within the week or so after that we will announce the three winners um and then uh, early on and one of the reasons that david didn't get an invitation uh early on uh the national space society only uh invited the winner uh but now they've changed that policy and they invite all three of the winners to come to the isdc so um and so if you're one of the top three winners, then you should be able to, you know, you should be able to come. Um, and also, it's in Los Angeles this year, so um, a lot of great uh, space stuff going on out in the LA area, including yeah. like SpaceX. You may have heard of them. <laughs> yeah, there's probably going to be some some amazing people at the conference uh, this time as well. So um, everybody should uh, that that wants to um, and, and that. Um, that and and the contest is open to to writers of any stripe anywhere. You don't. It, it, this is not a first publication thing. If you've written um, elsewhere, we still want to have your stories, right, Bill? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we get 
we actually get you know high school students sending stuff in, and then we've got people like uh, you know like Martin and, and David who you know have got you know a bulk of work behind them um, who, who send in stories as well. So um, so you know yeah you you know all these uh, all these stories get thrown into the same uh, cauldron and, and mixed around, and and, and uh, what comes to the top you know like the cream of the crop, and Surprisingly enough, um, we, we get new winners, you know, uh, people who, who really haven't um, made an impact in, in the industry yet, like Karen and, and uh, um, several others, you know, who, who really haven't had much published yet. So don't let that scare you. If you're a, a new writer, don't let that scare you off. We're after the story, you know. We, uh, um, the judges are reading it blind. Um, they're not going to be... You know, they're not going to be impressed by your credentials because they're not going to know them. <laughs> yeah, we just want the good stuff, and and we get it. Um, and we have collected the best of the good stuff in the Jim Bain Memorial Award, the first decade, which is um, out now at booksellers everywhere. And I'm just incredibly pleased to have all of you um, wonderful writers uh, here to talk about your stories um, with us now. And thank you so much. Um, Hang on. <laughs> Let me get my list to make sure I don't feel. Thank you so much, Marina Lostetter, um, David Levine, um, KB Rylander, and Martin Shoemaker. And thank you so much, Bill, William Ledbetter, um, for, uh, for putting this together every year. Oh, well, thank you, thank you. And, and everybody at Bain for making it uh, happen. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> no, All right, writers, rock on. You're all great, and we're so proud that um, we were able to um, to have some part in uh, in uh, your success and to uh, get some great stories from you. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship Dutiful Passage is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 18 Terrigan Jemmy Atha's Jumble Stop Birth 12 
Eleven hours and fifty-one minutes from the Admiral's twelve, and they were all of them gathered on the bridge. The pilot had ceded first chair to Tolly, choosing to hover at his left hand while Inky sat second, and Hazenthal occupied the observer's station. They had, in the hours since their rising, eaten a meal. The mentors had together examined the cranium which Tokel had moved to the study room and brought into a state of readiness. They had then returned to the galley, where, together with Tokel and Hazenthal, they talked over the choices open to Admiral Bunter and what their responses would be to each. If he accepts the download, I'll do ops, Tolly had said. Inky'll spot, Tokel will establish the pipe and keep it open. Haz'll make sure we get no interruptions. That was the most desired outcome, that the Admiral would accept the download and the chance at a new life. Hazenthal was not, in her soldier's heart, entirely convinced that the Admiral would move in the direction of Tolly's desires. There had been, to her ear, a mortal weariness in the Admiral's voice, the same that could be heard in the voices of soldiers who lay dying on the field of battle. Her heart considered it most likely that the Admiral would ask for a comrade's grace, which Tolly had offered and which Tolly would, she knew, administer, quick and sure. And so an ending for the Admiral of the pain of living. For Tolly, though, she feared that mercy would cost Tolly much, as the death of the city administrator had done. Fierce in battle, as she knew him to be still, Tolly was a fighter, not a soldier. He wished to preserve, to empower, to repair. He broke reluctantly, and the death of another was a blade to his own heart. Had Mercy been a blade indeed, she would have taken his duty as her own. As it was, there was nothing she could offer him save to guard his back. If he asks for the final program, Inky had asked delicately. Same configuration, Tolly said, his voice brisk and his face tight. Inky nodded, and Pilot Tokel spoke. We hope very much that the Admiral will find himself able to rise to the challenge of an improved environment. Both mentors had nodded, each with their face turned slightly aside. So, Hazenthal had thought, somewhat relieved, they are not blind to the likelihood Merely they wished very much that the Admiral will find courage and that the transfer process would function as it ought. There had been silence in the galley then. Inky had gotten up to brew another pot of tea while Tolly leaned back in his chair, eyes closed, arms crossed over his chest. And if he chooses glory, the Admiral... Hazenthal asked, which none of the others had done. Being Kojagun, not soldiers, perhaps they had not thought of it. How then shall we deal? Glory? 
Inky asked from behind her, if he should maneuver and seek position. She glanced over her shoulder, saw no comprehension on Inky's dark face, and looked back to Tolly. He'd opened his eyes, a small frown pulling his brows together. You think he's gonna try to run? He can't run, Has. If he tries to move those ships, he'll lose one straight off. The breached trade ship, he meant. The ship may fail, yet the comp still function, she said. Long enough, the miner holds a tool that has already been used effectively as a weapon. If Admiral Bunter seeks to engage the station, glory, Tolly said then, in the tone of one only now understanding the depth of his orders. I don't think he'll try that, Has. Captain Waitley set that imperative to guard the station pretty damn hard. If he does try, if he does try, there are cannon on the repairs side, Inky said, bringing the teapot over and refreshing three cups. Admiral Bunter cannot, I think, win. She put the pot down in the center of the table and turned to look Hazenthal in the eye. But neither can the station. If the Admiral should seek glory, Pilot Tokel said into the silence which followed this, I will be responsible for the station's safety. The three human members traded glances. Neither of the mentors seemed disposed to disbelieve or argue with her. Therefore, Hazenthal likewise held her tongue. If Pilot Tokel declared she would do a thing, then that thing would be done. The clock showed that eleven hours and fifty-nine minutes had passed. Hazenthal saw Tolly take a deep breath and close his eyes. His shoulders relaxed and his posture in the chair eased. He had performed a focusing exercise then. Excellent. She should do the same. She closed her eyes and accessed the simplest of the several exercises available to her, drew in a deep and deliberate breath to set it, and... The calm chimed, call incoming. She opened her eyes. Tolly opened the comm line. Terrigan, Tollens Barrick Jones. This is Admiral Bunter. Belatedly, Hazenthal realized that she had risen to her feet. From the corner of her eye, she saw Inky spin her chair toward Tolly, while Tolly, Tolly sat like a man made of wire and ice. His hand poised above the board, and his face so pale, his freckles looked like spattered blood. The voice from the comm was, the timbre was the same, the off-balance spacing of the words was the same. But there was no weariness in this voice, nor pettishness, nor fear. Calmness, perhaps there was that, at least that. Or perhaps her ears lied to her in the advance of Tolly's pain. All comps are functional, Pilot Tokel said softly. Environments have not appreciably degraded. Usage is down. He has regressed? 
Inky asked. When Tolly simply sat there, white to the lips and scarcely seeming to breathe. I think not, Tokel answered. I think that he has entered a low energy state. Perhaps, Hazenthal said for Tolly's ears, perhaps he conserves his strength for the transfer. He drew a breath then, carefully. She saw his shoulders lift, his finger moved, and flicked the switch. Admiral Bunter, I'm glad to speak with you again, he said, and for all his paleness and distress, his voice was warm and soothing. My team and I are anxious to hear your decision. Yes, the very calm voice came from the speakers. You are anxious. I... Silence fell, though the open channel light remained bright. Tolly threw a glance to Tokel. Working, mentor, she said, soft-voiced and matter-of-fact. If he's at low energy, it may require some effort to bring thought and speech together. He nodded and looked to the light, deliberately relaxing his shoulders. I... The voice from the calm said again, and a third time, this sounding stronger. I accept the transfer to a secure environment. That's good, Tolly said gently. That's real good, Admiral. I'm glad you made that choice. We're going to bring you over just fine. When will you be ready to start? I, Admiral Bunter stated, am ready now. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jakowitz. And a diamond as big as the Ritz Bradbury Hotel and Hot Springs on the balmy slope of Olympus Mons, and a lifetime supply of wrenches to throw into the works, plus thanks and praise for William Ledbetter, Marina Lotsetter, David Levine, KB Rylander, and Martin Shoemaker, the editor and several authors of the Jim Bain Memorial Award, the First Decade Anthology. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 